Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page ad-free. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking with rapper Vic Mensa about his new album, Victor, and his many other projects. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Kopp. But first, we're talking with Rolling Stone's Althea Legaspi about the challenges women face in music journalism and a few examples who have excelled in spite of them. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We want to welcome Althea Legaspi to the show. It's been too long since we chatted with you, Althea, but this extraordinary piece you did uh, late last month for Rolling Stone, Breaking Through Rock Journalism Boys Club. Wow, super timely. Uh, I know it's a piece that uh, you struggled with but thought was really necessary. I'll spare you the recap and do it myself. Jan Wenner, one of the founders of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, was out there touting his new book uh, of long interviews of him sitting with uh, uh, genius musicians, Mm. you know, Bono and Mick Jagger. And, uh, you know, uh, quoted in the New York Times saying, uh, when asked why there were no musicians of color or women, uh, said they weren't as articulate as the men he spoke to, which... um, uh, got him canceled <laughs> kind mm. of instantly kicked off the rock and roll mm. uh hall of fame's executive board derided from every corner of the rock journalism world if you ask me uh maybe 40 years late <laughs> mm. <laughs> since rolling stone was problematic for many reasons of uh, throughout its entire career but um you are a senior news editor at Rolling Stone, and you do bang-up work, and we've talked to you about numerous news stories over the last couple of years. Again, it's been too long. You're, you're, you're worked to death by them. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what prompted this article, and was it difficult to pitch to Stone, to your editors? You know, I, I just wanted to correct the historical record and make sure that the legacies uh we're not erased of the women. There's been so many women and BIPOC and underrepresented yeah. people over the years who um, have not been getting their dues even now, which is, 
you know, completely a shame, uh, though things are improving. And I just kind of wanted to illustrate how long historically women have uh, been doing the work, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so there are generations of women uh, represented in this piece. But in terms of pitching, uh, it was, a, by the way, it's going to be in the November issue, although we did put it on all, online already. Um, and so for me, that was very important, again, for the legacy. This is a, a pretty big deal that we, I think that the editors did actually support this and are putting it into the magazine because uh, that's their microfiche or whatever <laughs> yeah, that's, in well, the that's future. that's the permanent record. That's the yeah. one rock magazine that every library in America has, yes. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think that that was really special. But yeah, it was it was difficult to pitch because uh, for me personally, and I, I think you both come sort of from the work kind of from the old school, and I don't like to be the subject matter of a story. I like to tell other people's stories. So uh, for me, that was a little difficult. Also, growing up Asian American, we're, I, I was raised to kind of keep quiet and and do my thing. Um, and so for me to kind of have to do this in an essay way that could show that I'm the person to talk about this, that actually has some background and understanding of what it's like to struggle um, as as a non-white woman working in the rock music space. Yeah. Uh, th- I think that was probably the most difficult thing. And I did get encouragement um, from the main editor, Kate Story, who edited my piece, I think we were all just completely in shock of what happened with Jan. And so I think that that I'll admit that I was a little scared to pitch it for that reason, if that makes Mm -hmm. any sense. Yeah. Now, among the women you talked to, uh, there was a range of generations of different experiences. Uh, Candia Crazy Horse, a black woman writer whose work was always extraordinary. Daphne Brooks. Brittany Spanos, but I was always thinking that your attitude was very similar to Jan Uhelski's, who <laughs> we've had on, on Sound Opinion several times over the years, a uh, complete heroine of mine. When you would ask Jan, and when I've asked Althea Legaspi in the past, mm-hmm. you know, a you know, woman in music journalism, you're like, I'm a music journalist, you know, period. I, you know, let, let's not talk about that woman stuff. Uh, I've struggled. It, it, anybody who's trying to make it in, in music journalism struggles. You know, Jan, Jan's always uh, uh, said, uh, did I have problems as an editor of Cream, uh, the legendary magazine out of Detroit? Yeah. And I didn't let any problem ever stop me. And your career has been the same way, Althea. Yeah, no, and she J- talking didn't to Jane. There weren't problems. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, and and you know, truth be told, you already both know this. You and Greg uh, were huge champions of mine and mentors, so I, I need to acknowledge that I wouldn't be where I am without that. But I have said that to you both in person as well. Um, but Jan, I had been a fan of her work. This is the first time I got to speak with her, uh, and I mean. I'm from Detroit, so yeah. and her, she is it of the earliest rock writing days, as you mentioned. Cream, um, her her first cover story was in 1972, I believe, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and it just I wanted to make sure that it, she so she represented really the earliest to me, and she just had a lifetime to talk about it. The fact that she's resurrected Cream, um, and one of the things that I really appreciated when we were talking is that she also has noticed a change. Again, I think there's still a lot of change we need to work on, but um, just what Cream covers, she she admitted that back in the day that Cream could mm, be a little 
sometimes a little racist, me and <laughs> yeah, a little racist, <laughs> you and, know, and sexist, and sexist. And yeah. sexist. The green yeah. dream centerfold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so, uh, and and so she was there for that time period. Uh, and one of the things she said is she would just uh, whenever she, whenever she experienced something like that, she would just put it into the story, right? Um, and I think that 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 was pretty ballsy and I've always appreciated that about her. Uh, and yeah, so she was, she was really great and very integral to the story. Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, somebody like Jan highlights and yourself, Althea, you know, um, you're in different generations, but I think it was, you know, generations of women who are writing about, um, music, their experience was, I'm, I'm going to be tougher than I'm than anybody else because I can't let this get to me. I'm going to be a focus there's going to be a lot of demeaning stuff that goes on and I'm not going to be the complainer. I'm just going to, I'm going to do my job to the ultimate uh, that I can. And, and I have to be better than the guy next to me because otherwise, you know, it, it, it's easy to get kicked out of the, out of the club. And, you know, I really admire the work ethic and the amount of, um, you know, the, just creating that road for women to go down. But now it seems like, you know, the, the, it, women are able to speak out about some of these issues in a way that maybe wasn't um, able to happen for for the previous decades. You know, Jan especially going through what she did, I think, was uh, remarkable. You know, and you you had to go through some of the same stuff, Althea. So, the, you know, the perspective is changing. Um, do you, do you think it's going to create some permanent change in the way? Uh, you know, more jobs for women, more, more, more uh, authority positions, uh, being able to write about artists that are considered male type subject matter versus female subject matter. You see that kind of breakdown all the time. Do you think those boundaries are starting to fall, fall away? Yeah, I do think, I mean, clearly with Me Too, that was, that has helped the cause for across I think several industries, right? Uh, and and I think that the new generations are are so much more open minded and and don't think the way the past was. Um, and so I do. I agree. Both Jan, I actually every single one of us has several stories to tell uh, in the range of this. Jan from like you know late sixties into the seventies on to Brittany who came on as a freelancer in 2014 at Rolling Stone, we all have stories uh, of, you know, I think I gave the example of the vagina sina. Uh, I definitely <laughs> felt often that the pieces I knew I would probably get were if I pitched something that maybe other guys wouldn't, the guys wouldn't want to cover uh, or, mm. you know, and, and Candia said this, that, you know, listen, we want to write about music, kind of what you're bringing up. All of us want to write about music, men, women, good music. It shouldn't be that we only get specific kinds of assignments. And I do think mm -hmm. that is, that's definitely changing. I think that the package that this is going into is called Where We Stand Now. And we talk about that with the Black Rock Coalition, who looks at the mm -hmm. past. There's an essay from col columnist Ernest Owens there's a letter from our editor, Noah Schachtman, and then my piece. And we don't sugarcoat what the past is, but we're talking about how we're trying to change the future. And I do think everyone is, is I shouldn't say everyone, but I know for Rolling Stone, we have made a very concerted effort to make that change. I think that we're bringing in young, underrepresented artists or artists to our pages, but also writers. And I think that's integral 
for any newsroom. Um, that said, I opened my essay with the fact that it's still mainly white people getting hired and only 20 some percent of top editors are women right now across the world. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so is it changing? Yes. I think it's, it's definitely opening up. I, I don't think people are afraid to make those pitches, how much it's, how far we've come, obviously hugely from the sixties, but I, I still think there's just so much more we can do. You know, Thea, it's fantastic that you were able to, you know, highlight that, uh, you know, uh, gap uh, between what we want and what we are actually getting. <laughs> yeah, so. do, do we have to wait another 30 years, mm. Althea, for you to use the dreaded first person? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to trying to tell other people's stories for now. And I did tell other people's <laughs> stories here. but uh, No, you did. You did. You absolutely did. I know how much you agonize over not making yourself the focus of, uh, uh, of any piece you've ever written. But no. you know, sometimes, sometimes uh, yeah, it's unavoidable, the eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Breaking through rock journalism's Boys Club is uh, is an important piece. Althea Legaspi, it's an honor always to talk to you. And uh, I want to I want to see uh, you and everyone you interviewed and, and 30 more women on, uh, on a panel. Thanks. Totally. Yeah. You need to have a them all long. Panel. Yeah. I'd, <laughs> yeah. Go see, I'd, I'd go see that panel. Let's do a conference with. Uh, yeah. There you go. Um, I'd, I'd love that. Thanks so much for having me both. Obviously, Greg, that is just the beginning of conversations that should be ongoing. Thank you, Althea, for the work you do every day as a music journalist. Do you listeners have something to add to this topic? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. When we return, we're talking with Vic Mensa about his new album and the music festival he founded with Chance the Rapper in Ghana. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions is sponsored by Factor. Factor's ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success. Skip the grocery store, prep work, and cooking fatigue. Instead, get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 meals to choose from per week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, plus over 55 weekly add-ons, you'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options. Factor now offers additional options like breakfast, smoothies, juices, snacks, and more to keep you going no matter what's on the schedule. When things get hectic, Factor is flexible. Change your order up every week or pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. So if you want to try Factor and make your life easier, here's what you need to do. Head to factormeals.com slash soundops50 and use code soundops50 to get 50% off. That's code soundops50 at factormeals.com slash soundops50 to get 50% off. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island. Since 1988, Goose Island has been brewing award-winning beers in Chicago that are inspired by this city. 
Take 312 Lemonade Shandy, Tropical Beer Hug Double IPA, and a rotating series of hazy IPAs only available in Chicago. Uh, you know, every time we go down to Goose Island, there's another one that they're pushing on us. That's right. You and know, they're all good. Absolutely. And uh, what supporters of, of musical culture, you know, in, in the city of Chicago and elsewhere, uh, if you go to a show in Chicago and you see that Goose Island uh, sign, you know, you know you're in good hands. Uh, they're music fans as well as great uh, beer makers at Goose Island, so we're really proud to be associated with them. The Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago's Beer. And we are back. Astute listeners will remember that we had Vic Mensa on the show once before, episode 635 in 2018. Back then he was 24, and he had just released his debut solo album, now he's out with a follow-up, Victor, and he's 30 years old. Hmm. You know, I can remember uh, talking to Vic Mensa when he was a teenager in, yeah. in Kids These Days. He was uh, a, a group out of Chicago. And the one thing that always struck me about his music, he, going back to that time, was how open-minded he was mm -hmm. about what hip-hop could be, how, what, how his voice could fit in. He didn't see a narrow lane. He saw it wide open. And it was part of a new generation of young Chicago artists who redefined the genre um, in that image. And a very, very deep thinker that belied his age mm -hmm. then, and he's only gotten more profound now. You can't be a Chicago hip-hop artist without being an activist, without being uh, you know, a social commentator, without seeing the world. Uh, that's, that's the one thing I've admired about this scene uh, from the very start. Uh, and as you'll hear in our interview, a lot has changed in Vic's life in the time between those conversations. But one thing that hasn't changed is his deep thinking and commitment to intersecting his art with his activism. Welcome to Sound Opinions, Vic. Thank you guys for having me, man. And I think as I told you guys back then in 2018, um, it is really a pleasure whenever I get to speak to you and I have grown up listening to your voices <laughs> and your opinions. And so it's... Uh, it's always just like a dream come true to talk to you guys. And still he comes back. And that's always... <laughs> yeah. Victor, um, this was a tough one to make. Your sophomore album proper. A lot of changes in your life, uh, all of which are chronicled in this uh, really smart, brilliant, uh, eloquent, moving, um, really almost like an audio diary. <laughs> <laughs> of mm. what's going on in your life and where you came from and what's important to you, um, take us take us up to speed on making this record. It's 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 process. I started making this record about two years ago, two years and some change. I like to say that like it began in earnest in a moment of prayer. I was in a mosque for the first time, and I was listening to the kutbah, that's like the sermon in Islam. And um, the imam, he was saying that there are two types of people in this world. Some people that are struggling with their family, they're struggling with addiction, they're struggling with violence in the streets, struggling with mental health, overall struggle. And then there are people that are on what they call yadin in Islam, just like um, a, a path of purpose and intention and things are aligned for them. And I was really struggling at that time, man. And so I'm, I'm praying to God and I'm telling him, like we do when we're in a tough spot, God help me out and I'm a change. You know right, what I mean? Right, right, right. <laughs> I'll be a better person if only you give me an assist here. 
Um, and then a week later, I got in this bad car crash. I was drunk driving and um, had like some illegal things in the car. It was it was a bad situation. And I totaled this Range Rover and it was just like a really foolish situation. And I got a major blessing in that a friend of mine came and got rid of the car, the stuff, me and... Um, I didn't have to like pay the ultimate price for that. Mm. And um, that was just like a wake up call to me. And so I really just started shifting things in my life and like went sober and more holistically just started uh, working on integrity, you know? Like that's something that I'm exploring, I guess, in the music a lot in this album is. The idea of integrity being integrated into parts of your personality. I started um, just working on acting with integrity. And the music really comes out of that. And and from a space of discipline. You know, just really laser focusing in on my my purpose, which I believe is uh, to bring truth to the people, you know, as a truth teller. And... um, the act of discipline is a absolutely integral part of my creative process because I gotta try. I gotta write a hundred bad songs mm. to like to, to come get up with one the keeper. Like. Mm. Yeah, you know, like one time. One time I had this conversation with Damon Albarn actually talking to me about albums, mm. and um, yeah, he was telling me for one ten song album, you know, he had written like. Hundreds of songs, hmm. and um, I thought that was like so revealing, you know, because I think a lot of times in hip hop specifically, um, it'd be like, no, make this a mixtape, you know, yeah. put something out every two weeks, you know. What I mean? yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> hearing him say that, it gave me some perspective on why whatever album of his he had made was so good, you know, because mm. it was a, an intensive process. A lot of artists don't realize that not every idea is golden, you know, they, and, and self-editing is a big skill that comes, I think, with maturity. That's just a necessary part of writing, man. And uh, I'm always editing, though. You know, sometimes I'm still editing a song after it's out. Mm. You know, there are times when I make a song and, it won't be until a year later while I'm performing it on tour that I figure out exactly what I meant to say, you know, mm. and change the lyric a little bit mm. and make it just like get it across the finish line to being like a really clever lyric. You know, something you just said, Vic, about two sides of you. In some ways, I think you've been wrestling with that whole thing for all your life, that are, or at least the time since I've known you, since you were a teenager. We talked about this, um, that song where you're talking about growing up on 47th Street, directly addressed in the autobiography record in 2017. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that neighborhood that you grow up in was sort of schizophrenic too, right? I mean, you had two sides that you talked about on that record. Storefront churches next to the chicken shop, across the street from the liquor spot. That's just a position, I got 32 shots in my clock, I don't listen to Fox, my middle finger to cops, uh. 
So this seems to like have always been part of your DNA. Like you couldn't escape it because you were living it every day. 100%. You know, I actually had a conversation with this healer in Hawaii, which is an interesting part of this album. He put energy healing into this album, which, um, you know, was just an interesting, dope thing for me because I'm, I'm about that type of thing. Like, you know, I had him record these healing frequencies and put them in the album in different songs. Hmm. Um, but I'm mentioning him because we were talking and he was like, he's got like kind of like this thick, like Southern Texas accent. And he was like, you're all mixed up, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, you know, just talking about like, sometimes the confliction of the size of my ethnicity that will be in contradiction, you know? Like being um, very directly of uh, African DNA and at the same time of white American DNA. Like my mother's family came here in the 1600s, something I didn't know, like mm -hmm. American American, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and that could be conflicted, like on a base level, you know? I don't have any evidence that my mother's family were slave owning, um, but obviously in the last 500, 600 years, the places that my mother's family comes from and the places that my father's family come from have been deeply at odds, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And the, the relationship has been fraught on a macro level. Um, well, well, you said you talk about your aunt, and you do in in that incredible song, uh, "Blue Eyes." She always wanna have blue eyes, an oxymoron like true lies. Fighting demons inside, using lightning and cream to hide her complexion, killing and suffering the inside. She couldn't handle the sunshine. Her skin developed a cancer in the enzymes. What she thought was the answer had now threatened to cancel the melanin that's protecting her. It's a thin line. Did so your aunt had been bleaching her skin, and that led to skin cancer, and you take this as an opportunity to look at your own conflict about being biracial, and why is it that these Eurocentric beauty standards, you know, white and fair is beautiful, black mm. is, like, I mean, it was Malcolm X rap, right? <laughs> you know, look up the dictionary definition of black versus white, mm. uh, you know, and all negative for, for dark and, and positive for light, right? Um, Wow, what a thing to build a song on. That was one of those necessary ones for me. I started making that song actually in 2016. And I had done ayahuasca for the first time. And I was asking, why do I feel so much pain? I had this higher consciousness come to me. And it was like, I used to want blue eyes. That is the root of my pain. So I knew I had to make a song out of it. And I started writing the song, but all the words just didn't come to me. Then when the situation happened with my aunt, it was such a heavy emotion that I almost felt like there was only one thing I could really do with it, you know? And being in a place where I'm not drinking, I'm not dealing with grief in some of those other ways, I'm like, man, the only thing, I'm not gonna sit around and wallow in this, you know? Mm. So I just went to the studio. Um, and it's a song I've been trying to write for a long time. And I think it's one of my most important songs and something that it, in time, like 
throughout the years, I feel like it'll say what needs to be said to someone that needs to hear it, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, obviously it's very directly about um, the psychological ramifications of white supremacy and European beauty standards. And at the same time, I think it sheds a light and can relate to people of any walk of life, of any experience, because there are so many convoluted beauty standards that are running rampant in our society now, you know? Like, I had an ill conversation with my mom. She is old school, you know? She's, like, born in the 50s. And so she was telling me, man, I got really depressed when I was a kid when Seventeen Magazine came out because Mm -hmm. here was this, like skinny girl that I just didn't look like, you know, and this is what I was being told mm-hmm. was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Then I had a conversation with a, a girl who went to early grammar school with me, like first, second grade. And she told me, she was like, man, I always felt like uh, y- your brown eyes were so big and beautiful. And I had blue eyes, but I felt like an outcast or outsider because I felt like everybody else had brown eyes, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Then I think I think about kids that are growing up and all they're seeing is so much plastic surgery, mm. you know? Young women growing up right now that are, um, I'm sure, like aspiring to completely unrealistic, uh, naturally unattainable plateaus of um, of beauty. And like, I think that the the core message in this song is something that applies or relates to all of those people. And it's just one of self-love and acceptance. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing that I think has uh, always been interesting to me about you was that, you know, you talk about conforming to these standards um, and, and, you know, you don't have to. You do that musically as well. Um, you're very... Uh, open-minded very uh genre non-specific like everybody has this idea of what hip-hop should sound like in 2023 right and i don't think you're following that (laughs) rule book you know it's kind of like i'm doing you know like i you get some stick because you've got a track on it that has house chicago house music on it right or uh, you know touching on that You've got Thundercat on the record, you know, you're ranging out outside of the boundaries that are set. I mean, you freaking did a punk rock record a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> That's always been there. And I would say you, you've been in the industry now long enough where you're on Jay-Z's label, for God's sakes. And at the same time, it's like, there's got to be these internal pressures to conform to what's going to get you on the radio, Vic. You got to right. do this. Yeah. So how do you kind of fend that off and still are able to rec- make a record like this where it's kind of like it's still you? I mean, I still hear the Vic Mensa, you know, that I met 10 plus years ago, kind of doing in this weird band Kids These Days, which yeah. is doing every kind of genre you could imagine, putting it together in a song. You're still that guy. How do you fight off that pressure from the industry to be, you know, pigeonholed? That's a real question. Um Man, I, I've come to realize that for all of the um, music industry shticks and the ways that 
um, consumption of music um, statistically works and it things drive into a singles-based market, man, like, people really do appreciate still, though, when you sit and you craft an album, like a, a body of work based on your experiences and your tastes, you know? Like, people... People resonate and appreciate that. And it can definitely be super difficult to uh, like wrestle with the um, homogenous sound of commercial hip hop, you know? Um, and like try to not regurgitate it, you know? Cause there's so much, you know, I swear to God, it's a constant thing in mm -hmm. an artist's mind, in my mind, you know what I mean? Like, um, because as you said, like there are very specific things that people think hip hop in 2023 is supposed to be, you know? It's supposed to be pretty overarchingly um, misogynistic. It usually um, it's very violent, you know? Um, just a lot of cliches, you know? And I guess it helps to be guided by the emotion, though, you know? Like, one thing in this record I realized is that the records I like the most on here, out of this album, are the ones that strike an emotional chord with me. Mm. And when I'm writing them, they, you know, maybe bring me to tears or bring me to laughter. Like they inspire emotion from me. And mm -hmm. the ones that tell uh, the most depth of my experience, like a Blue Eyes, you know, that's a record that I just love. And I thought people would love because when it brings me that level of emotion, it brings somebody else that level of emotion. And, um, you know, hip hop is based in in genre bending. As much as people like want to forget sometimes and have amnesia, it's mm -hmm. like hip hop is a genre that's born of the amalgamation of every other genre. You know, <laughs> yeah, right? Like hip hop is inherently eclectic. People and, forget that. We started our day, Vic, talking to Sasha Jenkins, who has just directed a really moving uh, documentary of Bismarcky. Talk about a guy who colored outside every line you could draw, <laughs> right? You know, yeah, right. making the music with his mouth. You know right, I mean? like, right, right, right. And singing like completely a, out of key, but it was beautiful. <laughs> like, yo, that's some Bobby McFerrin type, you know, yeah. like... <laughs> Like yeah. that's 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 strange, but it was fresh though, and that I I think that's part of the thing about hip hop is like taking these different elements and these different inspirations and rocking them with confidence, you yeah. know, yeah. being like, man, this represents me, this represents my people at this time, and um, and I feel that it's it's definitely rewarding, you know when uh when you can find a way to combine genres and things that people might not have thought could mesh and work well together and as you said greg that's also like my musical dna all the way 
from kids these days. I mean, we was playing yeah. everything. Mm -hmm. Sly and the Family Stone and Parliament Funkadelic and the Pixies. I'm hearing I'm hearing a little bit of, you know, it's the Thundercat track, but I'm also hearing more than a little bit of Prince in Strawberry Louis Vuitton. You know, I love Prince, man. I'm always, always listening to Prince. Prince is um, just one of my greatest musical inspirations and just one of my favorite artists. Like I was DJing last night. And um, I do the same thing when I'm DJing, man. I was I was I was DJing Prince um, and mixing it with like Young Thug, you know. I put Young <laughs> yeah. Thug's vocals. I like to put Young Thug's vocals over Prince instrumentals, um, and it's hard, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll be back with more of our interview with Vic Mensa. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island. Since 1988, Goose Island's been brewing beers in the spirit of Chicago. You can find IPAs, lemonade, shandy, and limited releases in-store or at one of Goose's venues in Chicago. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago's beer. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And we're back. We're talking with rapper, activist, and entrepreneur Vic Mensa today. Let's get back into it. A lot of Chicago artists that came up through that spoken word and that scene at the library, you know, the open mic scene uh, that are friends of yours, that you associate mm. with, that generation that's trying to change the world, not just through their music, but through their acts, you know, in the world, how they conduct themselves as business people, as, you know, as activists. The stuff you're doing at Ghana with the Black Star Line Festival, You've been there a number of times. That's where your dad is from originally, right? When I heard of this, it reminded me of the fact that there was a very famous co concert there in the early 70s that became a movie, Soul mm. to Soul, yeah. where people like you know Wilson Pickett and um, you know, Ike and Tina Turner and Staples Singers and all these great black artists went over there in the early 70s after Ghana was celebrating its independence from colonialism, right? It, it, it was Word. basically a new country run by black people, right? Yeah. And they exchanged the cultural exchange, and you could see the look on the people's faces like they were recognizing themselves. And, you know, the civil rights movement was going on in, in the States, you know, at the same time, so they were talking to each other across those lines. And it's, it, it's interesting to me that you're doing this festival now in that country. So what have you learned by going over there as much as you have. And I understand you're also getting students to, to make that same cultural mm -hmm. exchange. What are you learning from that experience? Man, first I wanna just shout out uh, Brother Mike, who was our mentor at the library, as mm -hmm. you spoke of. Mm -hmm. To me, Chance, No Name, quite a few of us. And um, seeing him dedicate himself to the lives of the youth and the creativity of the youth and empower us and gas us up and tell us we were dope, give us a space to create, give us studio time. I think that implanted that spirit in all of us, you know, that 
this is what you're supposed to do when you can. Um, so going to Ghana to do the festival um, with Chance um, is really an extension of that in many ways. I was obviously um, going to Ghana since I was a kid because my family lives there. But it wasn't until I started going recently and building my own relationships there that I started to realize the dichotomy of privilege and responsibility. Like, to realize that I have a privilege to have this direct communication with my culture, because most of my people here have lost that, um, or having that, have, have that taken from them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have that privilege and that gives me a responsibility, but at the same time, an opportunity to, to build a bridge, to bridge a gap. As you speak of soul to soul, my father was actually at that concert, and mm. oh wow, mm. that, was, that was a very similar thing. You know what I'm saying? Like I was super inspired by that, and um, just thinking about the fact that damn, I'm Ghanaian and I've never even performed on the continent. This was a few years ago. I'm like, I've performed all through Europe. I've performed all through Australia, Asia, um, you know, South America. You name it, but in Africa, even me, I've never performed at this point in time. And I start identifying the reasons why and looking for solutions. Um, and albeit those solutions might, in this moment, just be enough to get the artists over there. I don't know that it's the, the end-all, be-all of tearing down the walls of division, you know what I'm saying? But I think that... I like to identify ways in which I can make a tangible difference and just go for it, you know? And I'll learn along the way, like you said. So I think things that I've learned um, are that a lot of the misunderstandings, disagreements, and just misalignment between Black Americans and African people um, are by design, they're manufactured, manufactured division. And it has served those that exploit us on either side of the ocean for us to look at each other with mistrust, distrust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For us to be unified is uh, much more dangerous, but it's also obviously a lot more powerful. And so my intention was bring artists there. I knew it would take friends. I knew it would take favors and relationships um, because I've learned that the um, economic translation is one that is not done through Google Translate. That journey is <laughs> difficult. <laughs> mm -hmm. But at the same time, I've also really learned like the depth of the, uh, of the desire, man, for our people to connect. Like there are people that really want us to return in Africa. And there are so many of us on this side that really um, in their bones desire to touch that soil and mm. to em embrace their history and learn about themselves in that way. Um, I've learned perspective on the chaos of America. Sometimes you have to really step outside and spend time elsewhere to realize that 
this particular brand of fear mongering that we live inside of as a, an everyday occurrence is not only just very corrosive, it's just not the same everywhere in the world. Like, mm-hmm. you don't walk around thinking you're going to get shot at the grocery store, or, <laughs> yeah. you know, at a routine traffic stop. Like, that's just not everyone's experience. Um, and, man, you know, I've, I've also learned that, like I said, man, the people will, the people will come and support. And, and this is something that our culture desires, like, and needs, you know, it, a lot of our issues are directly stemming from our lack of um, understanding of our history, you know, and feeling like we're on this island and that our our genesis is in the southern states of the United States with slavery. Mm-hmm. And that's the beginning of our history. That's what we're taught in school. They don't teach you about Mansa Musa in black history class, or, you know, the, they don't even contextualize Egyptian history and all of those contributions as being uh, of African descent. So even in the process of making this festival, I was studying a lot of things, studying a lot of Egyptian history, studying the history of capitalism and slavery, studying like um, neo-colonialism and Kwame Nkrumah and Still studying. Mm-hmm. You can get in trouble for that in uh, several states. Well, you right know, now, Vic. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking here. This is like concert uh, promoting a concert as sort of a classroom experience. It's like an education, doing something fun, and you're learning. You're learning a lot about cultures as a result of that. You know, uh, it's a it's a fascinating, fascinating endeavor. It um, really was, man. You know, we even did a. A summit. I did something that was called the Pan African Summit, um, and Revolt helped me out with that. A friend named Shaka Bars helped me out with that, and a lot of people came to lend their voices. And so this was like top level architects of the globe that are of Ghanaian and British descent, and uh, poets like Jay Ivy came and sat, and my sister Ajmone came and sat, and um, entrepreneurs and um, government people, even um, the daughter of Ghana's first president, who was the crowning jewel of that time frame you spoke about, Greg, Kwame mm. Nkrumah, his daughter Samia Nkrumah came and gave perspective and insight into her father's legacy, his mission, his intention. And yeah, with this festival, the whole idea of it, I I called it a... a Pan-African Festival of Art and Culture in that um, it was an amazing time and it was a party and it was rocking till 6 a.m. And also in the process, it was definitely an opportunity to create a brain trust and to not only educate, but to learn, you know? And that's something that I tried to say on the stage and in the mix of that, we have to approach these things with reverence and with respect. You know, it can be easy and a classic like American um, perspective to think I'm gonna come in here and I know everything and I'm gonna, you know, save the world or something. Like even <laughs> Marcus Marcus Garvey, who was our 
uh, like namesake inspiration of the festival, one of the illest organizers of all time and, you know, mobilized so many people for the love and appreciation of themselves. Um, and he actually never made it to Africa. And even him, he had he had some paternalistic ideas about Africa, like Africa needs a president, one president, which is a great idea, but he was like, and it needs to be me. Right, right, <laughs> you, right, right. you know what I'm saying? So it's like, we were just trying to address the complexity of it, um, like let it be nuanced, make it clear that it's like, I do not, I'm not coming into this thinking I got the answers to fix everybody's problems, but I just identified a, a gap and a need that I thought people would appreciate, and I'm just trying to do my part in that way. Mm -hmm. um, I got to ask you another question related to the album, connected to that, because the idea of legacy and passing it on to future generations. You know, you do a, a track called South Side Story, mm. you got to bring common in to sort of... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got to. On the amen corner I stood staring at my former hood. A land of gods where the mosque towers above the ghosts of Leon's barbecue. A city of contraband and contradictions. The horns of Louis Armstrong wrestle with the devils. While fireworks compete with gunshots on a hot summer night. Back in the day, we made the pilgrimage from the deep south to our Mecca, the south side. I remember when Common started out, talking to him, meeting his mom and stuff like that. And just a kid who, you know, started... What an inspiration he was to to the next generation, right? So, talk. talk can you let let us know about your relationship with him, his influence on you, and why specifically, you know, working on that track together? Man, Common has always been my favorite MC because Common rhymed about the same bus I was taking to and from Whitney Young High School while I was doing it. <laughs> he's talking about he's talking about the number six yeah. bus, and you know. Hyde Park and 87th Street and really depicted my world in such vivid clarity with the most lyrical brilliance and emotional depth, teaching at the same time, Asada Shakur and, you know, just dissecting like large concepts. And um, when I was writing this song, I was really going for a common thing. You know what I mean? I was like, mm. uh, just that that particular brand of vivid storytelling. Mm. And I wanted to give context to this city that we all know, you know, in this conversation, but a lot of people in other places like to flatten into this two-dimensional, um, like simplistic rendition of the truth, you know, mm -hmm. because bad news sells fast. And it, it's the same deal as with Africa. You know, you know, we think, you you know, here's what we think in our head this place is when right. you've never been there and never gone into the nuances. You know what I mean? It's like, this is a city of complexity. And so in the song, I'm talking about looking out of the window of my mom's house, that's dope that you met Kama's mom. That's crazy. Mm. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> nice lady. Yeah. Kanye's mom was great too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm staring out the window of my mom's house from the porch, and what I see is, 
you know, people are selling crack out this window, but then I'm across the street in a two-parent household with a beautiful family, and then one of the guys got killed on the corner, and then across the street from that is the Nation of Islam Mosque and people in worship. Then down the block is Farrakhan's house. A couple more blocks that way is Obama's house. Bust a right, and there's a trap house where there's, you know, pimps and prostitution. This mm -hmm. is all in a half a mile radius. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's complexity, you know? And there's a lot of historic precedent for the way, the reason things are the way they are. And I tried to, you know, just really dissect my perspective on it. And I had common in mind the whole time because like you said, like generationally, common is one that uh, he depicted the, the city and that life experience with complexity to me. So as I pass it on to another generation, I also want to pay homage to and just like join in the voice of the one that taught me, you know? Mm -hmm. Vic, thank you for that time. That was a great conversation. Always, always fun. I appreciate you guys in a major way, man. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> it's just another South Side story. The hope, the soul, the folks, the modes, the South Side. Yeah. Uh, it's just another South Side story. Where you at? Staring out the window with a green line train I dreamed I'd see my name on the wall I was enthralled by street fame Dope fiends going through withdrawal Deep pains White boys shooting fentanyl and green veins That wraps up our discussion with Vic Mensa, A deep and thoughtful chat that could have gone on four more hours Mr. Cott, what is on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to carve up some turkeys, uh, but uh, we're going to give thanks because it is Turkey Day coming up, right? Thanksgiving. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Max Hatlam, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott.